This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Thanks so much to tuning in to Trumpet Hour. I'm Joel Hilliker. Yesterday, Israel held new elections, their fifth in the past four years. And finally, there was a decisive result, a clear majority in the Knesset for the most right-wing conservative and religious government in Israel's history. And it will be led by none other than Benjamin Netanyahu. Yes, Netanyahu is coming back to power in Israel. We have our Jerusalem correspondent, Brent Noctegal, on a video call in our first segment. We'll talk to him about some takeaways from the results of these elections. Then last month, Nobel Peace Prizes for this year were awarded to three human rights groups that have exposed and resisted abuses in Eastern Europe. We'll hear from one of them, the director of a museum in Moscow for Memorial, Russia's oldest human rights organization. Trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic talked to her about the Nobel Prize and their work in Russia against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. In our third segment, we'll talk about sleep and how insufficient sleep can lead to gaining weight. There are a lot of negative effects from not getting good quality sleep. This is a fascinating one. We'll talk to holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian to find out why this happens and get some tips on turning bad sleep habits around. I'm sure you'll find this very helpful. And at the end of the program, we'll talk about why it's important to be an encouraging person and some practical ways that you can stand out in a discouraging world as someone who builds others up. Let's start now by going to Israel and talking about these elections. For this, we have via Skype from Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hello, Brent. Hi, good to be with you. So Israel's fifth election in four years, and there has been so much political confusion over this time. This is the first time we have a result that will produce a a strong majority in the Knesset. What changed? How did this happen? Yeah, so we've had a year and a half now of a government that was cobbled together using leftist parties, rightist parties, Arab parties, a center-left party as well, led by, first of all, Naftali Bennett and then Yair Lapid. And this was the the, fi- the, the, the first time that we had, saw in a decade that Netanyahu was not prime minister. And this was the anyone but BB group, yeah. all coming together uh to to get rid of the longtime leader of Israel, longtime conservative leader of Israel. And so I think what you've seen is a year and a half of this attempted uh, uh, ch- this chance at leadership of this other group of the left and what have Israelis benefited from uh their governance and little. Absolutely nothing, I would say. Many, many are looking at their similar things that are plaguing the United States as far as the economy goes. Um, and they're looking at an onslaught of a terrorist wave right now that's continuing over the past six months. They're looking at Israel, Israeli government capitulate to the United States over a deal with Hezbollah. Uh, we talked about that mm-hmm. going on in Lebanon just as far as last week. And several of these issues are, are coming up and, and Israelis are wondering, well, is what we, is what we had under Netanyahu actually better than what we've experienced once we finally got rid of the guy? And I think people are seeing that, um, well, they're showing that they want to return to his leadership, but they also, I think, want to return to, uh, more traditional conservative values in some ways. If you look at the religious uh, Zionist um, political party, they surged in this election compared to the past election. They they went, I think, from about six seats all the way, it looks like right now, maybe 13 seats. And so they doubled their gains. And this is a group that really, you know, they do have a couple of leaders. One of them is, I would say, on the far right that said a lot of racist things against right. the Arabs in, in history. Um, however, he's moderated as as you kind of do once you get a bit more power, the need to moderate somewhat. However, he's, they're both standing up for causes that are important for Israel, I would say, especially in terms of the, trying to get a hold of the Supreme Court that has absolute 
unchecked power in Israel to strike down government legislation by its whim, given that there's no real constitution in Israel. And so they want to reform that. Um, and they also just really did, did not like, I think, Yair Lapid's, you know, bringing up this two-state solution. He talked about that at the UN uh, recently. Most Israelis recognize that any type of Palestinian state, any type of deal with the terrorist group Fatah uh, is going to end in devastation for Israel. So numerous uh, political issues came together and that pushed Israel, I think, further to the right. So I, I definitely, there's a whole lot to talk about here. Um, just from a practical standpoint, what happens next? How long will it take before Netanyahu actually takes power with his government? Right. So Israel did not elect Netanyahu. They elected uh, his coalition. Let's put it that way. He he's leads the Likud party. They won, will win about 32 or 33 seats. You need 60 to make a majority in the Knesset. And so he's going to join together with a couple of other parties. They've or, this already these parties were already announced that they're they are one block one coalition um so he'll receive the mandate from the pri- from the president to try and form the government next week and then he'll have a month to kind of solidify uh the government itself and there will be wrangling inside this i mean netanyahu is not the right wing menace that everybody thinks he is at least as reported in the media he's more in the center and you're going to see the ultra right or the right wing elements in his coalition try and vie for cabinet posts, really important cabinet posts, defense ministry, interior secretary, internal secretary ministry, um, uh, internal security, I should say, ministry. And so he's and Netanyahu doesn't want to give them too much power. So you're going to see a bit of that take place. Um, so but we're looking about a month, I would say, before Netanyahu uh, is back in the prime minister's chair. So you mentioned these right-wing parties, and this really is the best result that they have gotten for for quite some time. These left parties uh, performed abysmally. Um, So you have uh, these parties that really uh, could affect uh, Israel's policy. The fact that, that Netanyahu is having to accommodate people on that side of the political spectrum rather than people on the left. How do you see that playing out? How does that affect the way that he governs? Well, I think it'll make it kind of difficult um, in terms of international relations for him mm. um, because you, uh, right now inside you know the, the most important ally of the United States, you have the Biden administration that's still in power. Yep. Um, and if there's any government that didn't want Netanyahu to come back, it's this one. You've already had the White House put out statements that they're not going to meet with these uh, right-wing elements inside Netanyahu's government. Um, so they have Netanyahu is going to have a very, very hard uh, situation there to try and navigate the Biden administration. He would have a hard time with that anyway. But now these right-wing elements won't won't give Netanyahu a break uh, from giving in at all to to the United States under Biden. So you have that. I I think you know. It takes a while to for this process of a government coming together and seeing how strong these leaders are going to be, these other leaders that are pushing Netanyahu to the right. I think you're going to see a very strong move in terms of security internally to try and stop terrorist activity that's just gotten out of hand uh, inside Israel. I think you might even see some changes on the Temple Mount. Um which allow for Jewish prayer there. That's one of the big things for this for this group, uh, for these right wingers. Yeah, I mean, some um, of these things that you're talking about these these are things that the the right has wanted for a long time. They just haven't had the the power to do that. Yeah, this lots of commentators are now saying that Netanyahu is finally going to have to be a right wing mm. prime minister uh, if he's going to represent the will of the people. Right. Uh, Israel's leftist parties, Labour. This is the party of you know Ben Gurion. This is the the party that maintained power in Israel for thirty years. They won five seats or four, five or four seats. It looks like yeah. Meretz, yeah. the other left party, won't even make it into the Knesset at all. And so this vote, more than I want Bibi, this vote says that no, I reject you, leftist media uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, people, and. <laughs> We believe that we are a traditional, conservative, and more religious 
yeah. uh, than you think we are. At least if they're not, you know, a, a religious. Basically, the everyday person in Israel, even if they're not religious, they hold on to the traditional values of the state of Israel, and they believe they are under attack by a minority that had gained power. And this is restoring power back to those people. Well, this this really is extraordinary. I, and I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, obviously we, we view this in light of uh, the, the nations of Israel, America being at the, at the top. Uh, the most important of those nations uh, right now, and prophetically what we expect to happen in America, is something somewhat similar to what just happened in Israel. We probably, uh, I mean, the fact that it's happened first in Israel is is kind of extraordinary. Before we get to that, I, I, maybe you could just give us a, a sense of the uh, the reaction within Israel. I mean, I imagine that you, you have... Uh, Jubilation on one side. Finally, we we uh, we're going to be able to get some traction on some of these long-held, cherished issues. And on the other side, these people that were so excited to write the obituary of Netanyahu's political career, for them to be, uh, for him to be back, has to have them apoplectic. Yeah, and I think people that don't really follow Israeli politics, you know, I, I I've got this Haaretz. Um, column right before me, editorial that just came out. It's entitled, Israel is now closing in on a right-wing religious authoritarian revolution. That's what's happening. <laughs> and some of these quotes, some of these quotes, in Israel, Israel, in recent years, Israel has become terrifyingly more extreme. And we've been watching this right before our eyes. And it talks about these right-wing parties uh, coming into power. Um, another couple of quotes it says here that this this coalition will allow him to carry out his plot against Israeli democracy, including a fate, fatal blow against the justice system. And then finally, it concludes this way. Israel is on the verge of a right-wing religious authoritarian revolution whose goal is to decimate the democratic infrastructure on which the country was built. This may be a black day in Israel's history. Mm -hmm. And so you can just listen to those comments and you know, this could be the United States mainstream media writing this of a Trump, yep. of a Trump victory or or a Republican victory in the midterm. The same yep. scenario is taking place in Israel, and those on the left, they don't like to lose, and they're suffering from the fact that they cannot win popular elections. And so, when they when they lose, what do they have to do? Delegitimize the opposition, call them radical, call them fascist, saying democracy is dead. Yep. And yet, what we're seeing here is actual democracy at work yeah the the fact that it's happening in Israel uh, first is is quite extraordinary and that this is so decisive and here we are just a week away from midterms in the United States and you're already hearing exactly that kind of rhetoric that you're describing as uh, leftists anticipate the the losses that they uh, that they may suffer it, it is uh, just amazing that uh, this 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 political voice within Israel has spoken out after all that has happened here over the last four years and as much confusion as there has been politically uh, in Israel for them to to get this kind of a victory. You can't help but think uh, that this really does foreshadow similar events taking place in the United States. Yeah, and I've seen numerous tweets already this morning from political commentators here that are saying the red wave has begun in Israel, mm -hmm. um, and expecting to see similar uh, a similar result take place in the United States uh, next week. And you know this this does make sense in many ways in terms of what we look at, what we have looked for in biblical prophecy about a revival, a temporary revival and resurgence that's going to take place in the United States uh, underneath the leadership of President Trump and the movement of, of President Trump. Um, and we know that his relationship with Israel is strong and his relationship with Netanyahu is strong. And so we've expected Netanyahu to come back to power as well. Uh, however, I, it's a, in many ways, in, in Israel's case, it seems to be a bottom-up approach. I think you've got the the people themselves that do want, you know, somewhat of a, a return to conservatism and and do value their traditional roots. The everyday people in Israel still value their traditional roots, um, and that necessitates for them voting for parties that are going to not 
back a left-wing government. There's right-wing parties as part of the left-wing government. Um, and Israel itself, I think a lot of the voters wouldn't have voted for the far right, mm-hmm. the religious Zionist parties, but there was no other choice. They needed to vote for somebody that wasn't Netanyahu that was going to push him to the right. And all the other right-wing parties had proved themselves disloyal and willing to go in bed with the left. Right. And so they had no other uh, choice on the ballot. Um, but to go with the religious right. Um, however, I think this connection between what's going on in Israel and what will happen, it seems in the United States is is pretty uh, spellbinding for us. Yeah, that that uh, that that really is a, a great point. We will see how this uh, plays out very soon um, as this government forms, and and we'll see uh, what happens in America next week. But these prophecies that Gerald Flurry has been pointing to. Uh, ceaselessly, really, even with Joe Biden taking office in the United States, he's been very strong about how prophecy shows that the way that this is going to play out in the United States is very different than the way that a lot of people thought at the time. And uh, and it's it, it really is becoming more and more clear. This is what we can expect to happen more broadly. And then prophecy tells us what what happens both in Israel and in the United States after that point. And uh, God gets it right every time, so you have to you have to uh, look at the the whole picture of what He prophesies is going to happen, and to realize that it's not even just uh, the the triumph of conservatism over the 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 uh, the forces of leftism. This this really is more about God trying to save these nations to give people an opportunity to repent in the short term, and then he is going to bring much-needed correction as well. well. We've been talking with uh, Brent Noctegall from the Trumpet's office in Jerusalem about yesterday's election in Israel. He's working on an article that should be sent out later today in the Trumpet Brief, our free email service. If you'd like to become a subscriber, just visit thetrumpet.com and sign yourself up. Great to talk to you, Brent. This is uh, just a fascinating story. We really appreciate your insights. No problem. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Last month, Nobel Peace Prizes for 2022 were given to three human rights groups that have exposed and resisted abuses in Eastern Europe. One of these is Russia's oldest human rights organization, as we will now hear in this report from Mihailo Zekic. Peace Prize laureates represent civil society in their home countries. They have for many years promoted the right to criticize power and protect the fundamental rights of citizens. They have made an outstanding effort to document war crimes, human rights abuses, and the abuse of power. Together, they demonstrate the significance of civil society for peace and democracy. So reads the opening preamble on the Nobel Peace Prize's website for the 2022 laureates. Amidst the background of the Ukraine war, three laureates, one from Russia, one from Ukraine, and one from Belarus, were given prizes. The Norwegian Nobel Committee announced these laureates on October 7th. Alice Bialyatsky, chairman of the Belarusian human rights group Vyasna, was one of them. Ukraine's Center for Civil Liberties was another. The third was Memorial, Russia's oldest human rights organization. Ukraine, of course, is ground zero for the conflict. Belarus, an ally of Russia, meanwhile served as a launch pad for the Russian military into Ukraine. We've spoken on this program before, about what the Peace Prize means for Vyasna and Belarus. But awarding the Peace Prize to a Russian human rights group, right as Russian President Vladimir Putin ramps up his attack on Russia's freedoms at home, is noteworthy. In 1989, amid lessening government restrictions regarding freedom of speech and access to information, Memorial was founded by grassroots activists wishing to learn the truth about the gulag labor camp system, 
which were infamously used by Joseph Stalin to silence his enemies by the millions. Memorial developed as a decentralized network of local associations collaborating under a common cause. The two largest branches were Memorial International and Memorial Human Rights Center. Memorial International was the umbrella organization for the various local organizations to associate with, while Memorial Human Rights Center focused on abuses of power by the current Russian government. Both were based in Moscow. Both these branches were liquidated by court order on February 28th of this year. This was only a few days after Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. Memorial's decentralized nature means the local organizations still can keep their head above the water, but the main faces of Memorial, the two major branches, are now, as Leon Trotsky once said, in the dustbin of history. Memorial was nominated in January by a faction in the Estonian parliament. Back then, few thought the situation in Eastern Europe would be what it is now. What was everybody in Memorial thinking on February 24th? The trumpet got into contact with Memorial last month. This is what Irina Galkova, the director of Memorial's museum in Moscow, had to say. Well, uh, nobody was thinking anything good, of course. Uh, but um, uh, everybody was shocked by the news. Though, of course... Uh, Everything was predictable, predictable, but anyway, it was a great shock. And if to speak about uh, memorial, uh, I would say that uh, the opinion to our own situation changed a lot because uh, before 20, February 24, we felt ourselves, uh, first of all, as victims of uh, the current regimes. And uh, uh, after the war was proclaimed, uh, this feeling changed because uh, now we feel ourselves like uh, we feel much uh, more as uh, we feel our responsibility for uh, the crimes uh, committed by this regime that we could not prevent and uh, we cannot uh, change currently. And it's uh, quite uh, horrible feeling, I would say. This makes the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize bittersweet. A few days after the Nobel Committee made its announcement, Putin made an announcement of his own in Ukraine. Galkova continues. There was a horrible attack uh, made by Russia to, to Ukraine, and it was just so much... Uh, frightening and horrible that uh, you, you just could not be, be happy uh, about getting this prize, uh, especially when it's peace prize, when you see how horrible is the war and uh, it gets another uh, force and uh, it takes uh, another uh, hundreds of human lives. Memorial's work in Russia and the former Soviet Union, has certainly contributed to, as Alfred Nobel wrote when setting up his Peace Prize, fellowship among nations and benefit to humankind. But the backdrop of Russia's war in Ukraine, and Memorial's precarious position in Russia, cast a shadow over their awarding of the prize. When you get the Peace Prize in the situation of war, uh, you cannot be calm about it because there is no peace. You got this prize, but there is no peace. And you cannot be calm until uh, the peace came, uh, come as a reality. It doesn't look like Russia's war is going to end in the near future. Or at least it won't end in a way where peace and freedom for Ukraine is secured. It doesn't look like Memorial's situation will be alleviated anytime soon either. 
the gift of the most prestigious award in peacemaking right when the situation looks bleak, both for Ukraine and Memorial, is certainly a cruel irony. This is not the only time the Nobel Peace Prize has cocked a few eyebrows. In 1973, it was awarded to American diplomat Henry Kissinger and North Vietnamese official Le Duc Tha for ending the Vietnam War. Less than two years later, North Vietnam conquered South Vietnam. In 1994, meanwhile, Palestinian terrorist Yasser Arafat won the prize. This is the same man the think tank Foundation for Defense of Democracies called the father of modern terrorism. In 2019, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed won it for his peace deal with Ethiopia's enemy, Eritrea. Since then, Ahmed has led Ethiopia into a civil war with allegations of genocide. This is then the great paradox of peacemaking in the modern world. Man creates awards like the Nobel Peace Prize to celebrate peace. Yet the harder mankind tries to make peace, to celebrate peace, to proclaim peace, the harder mankind fails. Jesus Christ said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. That's in Matthew 5 verse 9. Yet man's efforts to make peace have been anything but blessed. As the prophet Isaiah put it in Isaiah 59 verse 8, The way of peace they know not. Another great institution of mankind set up to bring peace is the United Nations. Herbert W. Armstrong, editor-in-chief of our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, was present at the UN's inaugural conference in San Francisco in 1945. This is what he wrote at the time. Quote, Success of the United Nations' effort for world peace requires complete harmony between the big three. But if America and Britain are to achieve harmony with Russia... It is already apparent it will have to be at the cost of justice in the smaller Baltic and Balkan nations and Poland. And if the rights of these helpless millions are to be trampled upon with impunity as the price of peace with Russia, then we still have no peace. End quote. It's interesting that Mr. Armstrong, all those decades back, put the focus on Russia as to why the UN couldn't bring peace. The same is true today with Ukraine, of course. It's clear Putin isn't going to stop the fighting until he gets what he wants. The only peace agreement Putin would accept is one that still gives him what he wants, control of Ukraine, in an underhanded way. If such a deal comes to effect, as Mr. Armstrong wrote, then we still have no peace. It's a pessimistic view of the world. But until something radically changes, not just in Russia or Ukraine, but in the whole world, nothing is going to change. The Nobel Peace Prize and the UN will be reminders that man's constant search for peace is time and time again fruitless. They will be reminders that, as our editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury often says, there is no hope in man. But does that mean that world peace will never come? Isaiah wrote that man doesn't know the way to peace. There is a way to peace, then. It has eluded mankind for thousands of years, but it does indeed exist. And in a select few examples, this way of peace has even been implemented in living memory with real, tangible results. It's certainly an unexpected method of bringing world peace, but it works. And contrary to how hopeless events like the Ukraine war may make men feel, this peace plan, so to speak, will bring lasting peace not only to Eastern Europe, 
but to the whole world. And it will do so very, very soon. To find out what it is, request a free copy of Gerald Fleury's booklet, The Way of Peace Restored Momentarily, available at thetrumpet.com. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Getting a good night's sleep is so important for your health, on par with diet and exercise. It powers the mind, it restores the body, it fortifies virtually every system in your body against illness. Lack of sleep causes a lot of problems, and studies now say one of those problems is a greater risk for weight gain and a higher body mass index. To talk about this, we have via Skype from his office in British Columbia, holistic nutritionist and personal trainer, Jorg Mardian. Hello, Jorg. Hello there. Sleep. So tell us why why sleep is so important. Well, sleep, good sleep is good health. And, you know, and like you said in the opening uh, intro, it's, it's incredibly important on par with diet and exercise. And most people don't put it up there on that level. Um, so when we get enough sleep, essentially it makes us feel better, more alert. We can concentrate and perform our daily tasks. Uh, it's basically one of the most important things you can do for your health and well-being, as well as to reduce uh, risk of disease. And now uh, significant weight gain is tied to insufficient sleep. And that's a real problem because a third of American adults are not getting enough sleep. Mm-hmm on a regular basis anyways. And so what that does is, um, you know, insufficient rest changes the timing of our internal clock, somewhat like jet lag, you know, how you feel really bad when you're crossing those time zones. And that creates a, a massive hormonal chaos in the body. And what happens then is that influences our behavior and eating habits. So all of those things are just linked. So knowing how sleep affects us is an important first step. Mm-hmm. We have to understand that. Then we need to reflect on the individual need of our sleep based on factors like activity level and overall health. And finally, uh, we need to apply healthy sleep tips so that we can actually get a full night's sleep uh, that's recommended. So uh, if I understand this right, you're ta- when you talk about the link between sleep deprivation and weight gain, uh, you it sounded like you had two or three factors there that contribute to that. Can you break that down for us in more detail? Oh, absolutely. So when we sleep, our brain um, totally changes function. And it becomes extremely active uh, with a restorative process. For instance, it's known that during sleep, there's a drainage system that helps us get rid of waste accumulated in in between the neurons um, produced by our normal brain activity during the day. And that's a pretty amazing process. And that helps us to clean the brain and therefore it's important for cognitive health. So that's one of the steps we need to have that Uh, fully happen with insufficient sleep that doesn't really happen the way it should. So everything from blood vessels to the immune system uses sleep as a a time for repair. If you don't get enough sleep, those processes are going to be deeply disturbed. Now, I was talking about the body's hormonal balance, and that's critical to maintaining good health and a proper body weight. So normally, um, a healthy diet and exercise takes care of this quite nicely. Um, But if you're burning the midnight oil, there's going to be some massive changes that unfold in the body because you're going to have those uh, dramatic hormonal imbalances that promote overeating and weight gain. And um, some of the most uh, or the best documented effects of drowsiness on weight gain are based on two hormones in our body, leptin and ghrelin. And these are hormones that regulate our appetite 
And if you don't get enough sleep, their production is altered so that they go in opposite directions. So, for example, there's a, a market drop in leptin, and that means there's an increase in our appetite. Mm. We just want to eat more. Well, ghrelin, it rockets up, and that means you're going to feel unsatisfied after you ate. So it's kind of like um, a double jeopardy. You know, you're getting punished twice for the same offense of not getting enough sleep. Wow. So if you ever thought that you were an emotional eater, and I, I get this a lot with clients. Uh, I'm an emotional eater. You just don't understand me. <sighs> well, here's an explanation. <laughs> hmm. Lack of sleep should be a primary concern if you're an emotional eater hmm. because it's going to make you crave food. But instead of kale salad, it's more of the unhealthy variety. So um, you're also going to get a spike in the stress hormone cortisol, which means you're going to hang on to more body fat. So that's, again, due to lack of sleep. So let's uh, researchers found that just a two-week period causes the body to hang on to fat by over 50% boy, oh boy. because of the cortisol spike. So this and this happens even when calories stay equal. So you can eat the same, but if you're not sleeping, your body's going to change, and so you're going to hang on to body fat. And the same happens with insulin, which normally changes sugar and starches and other food into energy. So within four days of disrupted sleep, uh, your body's ability to process that insulin drops by about thirty percent. And again that promotes fat storage. So these are all your major hormones. See the chaos happening within the body. Um, another thing that's pretty wild with disrupted sleep is, is our brain. You know, um, the frontal lobe of the brain, it, it, it kind of oversees the decision-making and self-control. And that becomes really dull. And that, and that should be no secret because we're just not functioning in all cylinders when we're walking around in, a, in sort of a stupor not having enough sleep. Mm -hmm. So now, not only are your hormonal changes slowing your metabolism and zapping all your energy, but you have to contend with cravings for all these unhealthy food choices and stimulants just to keep you walking and mm -hmm. acting normal. Mm -hmm. So the day is going to be quite unique, you know, like later you might skip the gym because you're you're not motivated. And then you pick up takeout on the way home because <laughs> you don't want to cook, mm -hmm. you know. And when you finally find yourself back in bed, um, you're too wound up to sleep. So it, it's sort of a vicious cycle uh, that we bring ourselves into. And a major downside of all of this is that not only does sleep loss lead to weight gain, but being overweight also causes sleep issues. Hmm which can in turn worsen all those functions I just spoke about that contribute to the problem, see? So it's the self-perpetuating circle. Uh, and at the end, uh, researchers said, all of this can lead to a 41% obesity risk. Hmm. So it's quite dramatic. I would suspect that quite a few people listening, uh, a lot of what you just described sounds a little bit too too close to home uh that this is this is something that there are a lot of people that struggle with i know a lot of people really do struggle with uh getting enough sleep and maybe you can just talk about uh, i definitely would like to talk about what the person can do to try to reverse that cycle um the amount of sleep that we need and maybe you could just talk about the quality of sleep and why that's important sure um, well, for most of us, well, for children, they should get about nine hours of sleep a night, just, just to get a perspective. Uh, teens, about eight to ten, eight to ten, and adults, about seven hours or more. And, and that's that depends on our own unique needs. You might need, as an adult, nine hours. Mm -hmm. um, but it isn't just downtime. You know, there's a quality issue most people don't address past flopping into bed. I'm tired. Boom, my head hits the pillow. You know, healthy sleep encompasses three major things. So one is how much sleep you get. You have to get the proper amount of sleep. The second is the sleep quality that you get. You know, and it should be uninterrupted and refreshing. And the last is a consistent sleep schedule. 
So, and you know, many adults feel that they need less sleep because sleep quality gets worse as we age. Mm. So even 30, 40, 50, you start getting less and less. And that's usually a lifestyle factor too, because we tend to be more inactive and eating poorly, or some people are on medications that interfere with sleep. You know, um, sleep is a dynamic process that keeps changing as we age. So when we get older, we s- simply sp- uh, spend less time in a deep sleep stage and more time in a light sleep stage. And, and we wake up more often as well, right? Yes, we do. And, <laughs> and that doesn't mean we all have insomnia as we get older. It just means uh, that our sleep is going to become more fragile to disruption. So we get up more often. And that's why many people feel that they don't sleep isn't as necessary because they just don't get enough of it. And they feel it's just not part of their lifestyle. They're so used to getting up. So to to get the necessary hours of sleep, we have to provide the environment to do so. You know, there are legitimate sleep disorders, but for most people, we just have to try harder to make sleep a priority. Mm-hmm. And I'll put myself right at the top. I'm always busy. I, I can work and work and work. I need to make it more of a priority. You know, sleep isn't a throwaway thing. It's it's a biological necessity. So, and many of us try to catch up on sleep on the weekends, you know, and, and in the short term that has some benefits, but, you know, if you have a week's worth of disruptive sleep, that's not healthy behavior. Yeah. You know, that, and, and that's a fact. So, uh, you can determine how much sleep you need with some guidelines uh, that the Sleep Foundation sets out. So if you're, as an adult, if you're productive, healthy, and happy on seven hours of sleep, you know, if everything's working, that's great. But if you're not running on all cylinders or if you have existing health issues, you're really active or you require alertness where safety is an issue at your job, then you're going to need more sleep. And that's a fact. You know, uh, if you suffer from recognized sleep issues, there's also um, two uh, downloads that the Sleep Foundation gives you. One is a sleep log and one is a sleep diary. And uh, I am providing the downloads to that. So the sleep log provides insight into your sleep patterns. You just fill it out and you kind of get a look at it. And the sleep diary calculates your sleep time identifies disruptions and other factors. So if you're then ready to commit to sleep, you know, there are some tips I can give um, our listeners which are going to benefit their weight and overall health. Um, The first I would say is give yourself a non-negotiable time to sleep, whatever you feel you need. Uh, Shut off your electronic devices that keep you awake. That's a big one for everybody. Yep. You know, read a hardcover book to produce sleepiness. Do something else. Your quality of life literally depends on it. And uh, you should also count out your recommended hours of sleep up to when you want to get up and then come backwards and make that the time you go to bed. That's lights out time, hard. You know, keep this consistent to set your body's internal clock so that you're going to be tired right around the same time every night. And that works actually. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is exercise, and we keep talking on this program about exercise. Well, it it, it helps you to sleep soundly at night. That's a fact. You're tired. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it improves your body's response to all those hormones as well, and then uh, it cuts down on the body fat. And another big one that we do uh, in our stimulated society, we're stimulated with uh, with these phones and everything, and we're stimulated with you know caffeines and and these sugar bomb drinks. Um, you know, cut the caffeine at least six hours before bed. There's a half-life to it um, that people don't realize, and it's going to keep you in a lighter stage of sleep, which is associated with poor sleep. You want to be in that deep ROM sleep at night. So bottom line, um, along with nutrition and exercise, taking care of your sleep is, is one of the pillars of health. We have to make it one of the pillars, mm-hmm. you know. It's associated with so many negative health effects, not getting enough sleep that, um, it, you know, it's insane. Now weight gain is, is on that chart as well. So if you, uh, just like you prioritize your diet and physical exercise, you know, give sleep now the attention that it deserves. And I'm going to put myself up there as well 
I need more sleep. Hmm. So, so the next time you're drawn to another nighttime activity, when you should be going to bed, you know, take our advice and just sleep on it. <laughs> I am ready for a nap. We thank you very much. We've been talking with personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian about the importance of sleep, especially as regards unwanted weight gain. You can look for his article at thetrumpet.com with the links that he was talking about to those resources. Always great to have you, Jorg. Thank you. Thank you. It's time for today's Last Word. This world is a discouraging place, and prophecy says it will get even worse. Yet God wants us to be happy. In fact, he commands it. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 7 says, You shall rejoice in all that you put your hand onto. In society today, the toxicity of discouragement flows freely, far more than the healing balm of encouragement. And we can easily absorb the spirit of sarcasm, put-downs, judgment, biting humor, complaining, and negativity. God wants us to rise above the negativity and help others to do the same. He instructs us in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. To encourage someone is to inspire them with hope, to fill with courage or strength of purpose, It implies infusing them with life, energy, or vigor. When was the last time you encouraged someone else? Most of us don't naturally do this. Why not? If if you find it especially difficult to say uplifting things to others, examine yourself and your personality to try to discern why. Here are a couple of common reasons. For one, we tend to pay more attention to negative things than positive. A single adverse item can preoccupy our thoughts, obscuring a whole slew of good and praiseworthy things. On top of that is our natural self-absorption. We don't tend to pay enough attention to others to even notice things worth complimenting and encouraging. Reorienting our thinking to notice the positive is a splendid goal. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul writes about gifts God gives people. Verse 8 says to focus on the gift of exhortation. The Greek word there is parakaleo, which means to call to one side, to come alongside, to help. This word combines the ideas of exhorting, comforting, and encouraging. This is a gift worth developing and using. And it's one we can all have if we let God direct our thoughts and we train ourselves to think on the needs of others, come alongside someone and help them. Pray that God would help you appreciate others and recognize when they need encouragement. And then back that up with genuine, consistent effort to pay attention and develop your awareness of situations where providing reassurance, support, or comfort is the thing to do. Paul tells us in Philippians 4 and verse 8 to think on things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report, to set our minds on virtue and praise. This means overcoming that natural negativity bias. Look for and notice these positive qualities in others. If you're attentive, you'll begin to find plenty of things to praise. The more observant you are, the better you'll be able to offer a compliment or encouraging word for very specific things, even seemingly trivial things that most people would overlook. At times, we may think positive things about someone. The key is to take the extra step and vocalize it to the person or write a note of encouragement. Even a few short lines can carry a lot of weight. And try to do it as soon as you think of it. If you wait, you'll probably forget Tell the person how what they're doing brightens your day or makes your job easier. If they're going through a difficult period, be sure they know you're thinking of them. Sincerity in encouraging others is critical. God seeks sincerity and truth in his people. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 8. The real value of an encouraging comment is how sincere and true it is. 
Don't give insincere praise and never flatter. There are a lot of proverbs that warn us against the dangers of flattery. Brett McKay, in an Art of Manliness article on giving compliments, advises relaying second-hand compliments, compliments from other people that the person didn't hear but that you pass along. Hey, Bruce, I was talking to Jim, and he mentioned how much he appreciates your contributions here and enjoys working with you. This can also mean complimenting someone to someone else. When those compliments reach the recipient, that can really mean a lot to them. Work to develop the habit of encouraging others. Building a positive habit is never easy. Challenge yourself to give some encouraging words to a handful of people each day, a loved one or a friend, a coworker, a clerk at the store, And don't neglect the value of even complimenting a stranger. Hey, I like your shoes. This benefits both the other person and yourself because it is more blessed to give than to receive. Becoming aware of others in this way is really a matter of orienting our thinking to God's way of give. God says in Psalm 50 and verse 23, Whoso offers praise glorifies me. By giving encouragement, we glorify and honor God. God is very positive. He believes the best in others. God is an encourager, always looking for things to praise and encourage us with. Even when we make mistakes, we fail, we sin, Jesus Christ is our advocate, our parakletos, one called alongside to help. It says that in 1 John 2 and verse 1. Follow that example. In a discouraging world, be an encourager. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Brent Noctegall, Mihailo Zekic, and Jorg Mardian. Thanks to Nick Irwin, Dwight Falk, and Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Nathaniel Hawthorne. Happiness is a butterfly, which, when pursued, is always just beyond your grasp, but which, if you will sit down quietly, may alight upon you. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.